bless you if you would turn, please, to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke 11, 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, Our Father, which, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you would go to Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning with verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, you will note in the two readings that these are not identical prayers. They are the same in principle, but the wording is not exactly the same, either in the English or the Greek. Uh, one of the significant differences is in Luke 11 and concerning our daily bread, it says, give us bread day by day. And in this, in Matthew, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, I'll talk about a little bit why this is significant. Uh, but the primary difference between the two is that Luke does not include the words uh, that's included in Matthew from the end of the sentence or, or scripture, deliver us from evil. Uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen is only included in Matthew. It is not included in Luke. Now, it is my belief, opinion, uh, from my own study, and I may have missed it, but I don't think so, uh, that the reason these two prayers are different isn't because there is some conflict, it's that they were actually spoken on two separate occasions. Two separate occasions. I believe if you study the surrounding verses or the verses before and after the prayer in both both situations uh you will you will see that it was two separate occasions two separate locations uh prior, some of the group was different uh there are some more modern uh versions of the greek text which do not include uh, the last part of verse 13 
in the original Greek text, but uh, the from my understanding, the oldest Greek text, including, and in this case, especially um, the Texas Receptus, which, or the Received Text, which is the text from which the King James Version was translated, it definitely includes that. And personally, uh, I do not, I'm not comfortable with the, the modern Greek text and its authenticity. Neither am I willing to take any of the modern translations that are translated from that modern text and use it as my primary Bible. Uh, as you well know, the Bible is divinely inspired only in its original languages. There is no divinely inspired translation. King James is not the Bible. It is a translation of the Bible. The Bible is the original Greek and Hebrew, Old and New Testament, or New and Old Testament in that order. And uh, so it's a translation. As such, it certainly is not perfect. Uh, it is as of last year, 500 years old, there is language in, in the King James Version that the definitions and our usage of words are different now than they were 500 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. But I trust uh, the King James Version above the others primarily because there's only a few other of the, of the existing translations that we may use that is also translated from the Texas Receptus. And so I may reference other translations, but I will not use them as my primary uh, reference work or scripture. Uh, I'm not going to memorize their scriptures or whatever. Uh, forgive me for getting into that, but I think it's critical because I've said all that to say this, there's no contradiction here. There's no inconsistency here between Matthew 6 and Luke 11. They're two separate occasions. The fact that they are not worded identically is, from my perspective, a positive, not a negative. It proves that he was not trying to get us to simply repeat a prayer, a written out prayer. That's why we as apostolic Pentecostals do not have a prayer book that we read words from. Uh, quickly, if I can, please, in summarizing and in bringing those of you that were not here up to date and, and using this as a transition into this next session. In the last session, I started out by talking about the three patterns of prayer. Uh, that pre-primary patterns of prayer that are included in Scripture, and that when you look at them item for item and pattern for pattern, they are very different. They are not the same. And you either have to believe that there's some kind of contradiction in Scripture, or there has to be another explanation, and I believe with all my heart that they're not only uh, chronologically in order, first, second, and third, but they really do define the, pro the progression that a, an individual Christian's prayer life is supposed to take over the course of their walk with God. 
And one of the reasons we do not progress through these any more rapidly is because we don't understand. It's hard to make progress in something that you don't even know you're supposed to be making progress in. It's hard. How do you know you're making progress if you don't even know what you're supposed to be making progress in? So consequently, uh, very briefly again, I talked about the, uh, the, the pattern for the tabernacle, which became the pattern, of course, for the temple, of the, uh, of the altar of sacrifice and the uh, brazen labor and then the uh, holy place and the holiest of all, and that there is a pattern for personal relationship or personal approach to God to get in his presence the first time through repentance, which is death to self, water baptism, uh, which is a washing, cleansing, and the application of the blood, and then uh, coming, beginning to worship God, serve God, and going from serving to fellowship, which is what you do in the the presence of the Lord in the most holy place. And, and Paul says in Hebrews 8 that, all of that is a pattern to show the, us that there is a way that has been made into the holiest of all for us. We are kings and priests. Uh, we will be kings and priests. We are priests now. We will also be kings and priests uh, in the Lord's economy of things after uh, the rapture. And as such, uh, we have access into the most holy place. And that is called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And again, very quickly, the Greek word that is the general word for tabernacle or temple uh, is not the word that is used when the scripture calls our bodies the temple of the Holy Ghost. The, the That Greek word that's used to, to when, when the scripture says our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost is actually the word that is used for the holiest of all or the or the most holy place. So... Your body and my body, by being baptized with the Holy Ghost, we, we, we are the most holy place. So we not only have access into His presence, but He is in us. So we're in Him, He's in us. So that's, that's fellowship, but fellowship is not synonymous with relationship. We call what we're doing right here in Pentecostal circles fellowship. We're in each other's presence and whether we're worshiping together or sitting around sharing some food, we call that fellowship. But that's not the same thing as having a relationship. Because even though our church is not large, it is large enough that there are people who come to church here that can't possibly tell you everybody else's name. They don't even come close to telling you, being able to tell you everybody else's name. So it is possible to fellowship with people you don't really know. So it's not a relationship. The second pattern of prayer is found in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. So when people move into a relationship with God, it brings a blessing on the land. But the scripture says... That a people that forget God shall be turned, that land shall be turned into hell. So the relationship, relationship 
of people to God brings a blessing on the land. When there is not a blessing on the land, that is evident, evidence that there is very little true relationship with God that's going on. And going to church faithfully, <clears throat> paying your tithes, giving offerings, not in the eyes across the T's of holiness, uh, <clears throat> having obeyed Acts 2.38. None of those things prove you have a relationship with God. In fact, you can do all of that, do it faithfully, and be nothing but a Pentecostal religionist. <clears throat> you can go to hell from an apostolic church seat or pew and be faithful because we are supposed to be growing into relationship we're growing into that relationship and uh, and so therefore again that second pattern of prayer starts out with uh, humbling myself uh, humble yourselves pray seek, seek my face so humbling yourself is is surrendering the the desire to be self-sufficient, self-dependent, to be in control of your life. That's being humble. Uh, not thinking badly of yourself, but giving up control of your life to God. Trusting the Father with your life uh, in, in the grand scheme of things and details all the way down to minutiae. And then the second part of that is to pray. And the third part of that is that prayer supposed, prayer or petition is supposed to turn into seeking the face of God. In prayer, we're, we, we can hear the voice of God, but in seeking the face of God, we're actually, we're not wanting to just fellowship, we're wanting a relationship. Paul talks, talks, made a statement, and I'm, not quoting exactly here, but he said, I, I, we, we know God, but rather we are known of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there would be people he would say to them, uh, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out devils in your name. And we did many wonderful miracles in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. He did not deny that his presence had been in them through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But they had never progressed to the place that they knew him. In talking about the, uh, the seven churches of Asia, they're one, one of the, the, the problem with the church at Ephesus. They were true to the doctrine. And, uh, they were adamant that they weren't going to accept people who claimed to be apostles and were not. But he said, I have somewhat against you. You've left your first love. And we've actually used that. People, writers, poet, poets have actually used that uh, to speak of the relationship between a man and a woman. That's, she's my first love. He's my first love. I've been around guys who thought they were funny. And wanted to introduce me to their first wife. 
you know, they were trying to be funny. It's the only wife they had, but this is my first wife. Well, I don't even speak that in jest. I don't want that coming out of my mouth even in jest. I only want one wife. I got her, and that I'd like to keep her as long as I can. And uh, her keep me as long as that could be the case. Uh, but th- there's a relationship there. And then the promise from God is that if I humble myself before him and I, and I seek him, have faith in him for petitions, and then as he manifests himself and I begin to see how great he is, then I want to know him. I don't want, it's in, in, in the first thing, the first type of prayer, you're just trying to get out of darkness into light. And then you're trying to learn how to just get into his presence on a daily basis. In the second prayer, you're moving into a place of, uh, of service and, and then into relationship. You're seeking for God. In the first one, it's about, about you. The first pattern of prayer, and it's all legitimate, but you know, you're trying to get, make sure your sins are taken care of, make sure you're, you're clean, and make sure that you have access to His presence. In the second prayer, that pattern of prayer is intended to lead you, uh, or, or to assist you in seeking for God. And the blessing, of course, if you seek for God, because the fourth part of that, humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. Meaning, once you have a relationship with him, you will find a degree of power and empowerment to overcome and live above sin in a level you've never been able to get to before. But the third pattern of prayer that we're going to talk about is not just seeking to get out of darkness and the light, seeking how to have access to his presence every day. And it's not seeking for him. The third pattern of prayer is instruction on how to work with him, to be a partner with him, a fellow laborer with him. And that prayer is easily, that's easily confirmed in looking at this pattern of prayer because we see that the whole first half of the prayer has nothing to do with us specifically. Now, I will say this. The confession that begins this prayer is in many ways equivalent to the way you start the second pattern of prayer. You start the first pattern of prayer with dying out to yourself at the altar of sacrifice. You start the second pattern of of prayer with humility. Casting your cares upon him, surrendering control over your life, uh, surrendering your desire to be in charge and control, giving up self-sufficiency, etc., etc. When the Bible says... Uh, love not, uh, 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 love, uh, love not the world, neither things that are in the world for the, if you love the things that are in the world, love the Father's not in you and all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The pride of life is self-sufficiency. Let me tell you a 
a, 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 a statement you, I guarantee you, not anybody in the room hadn't heard, or more than likely. But it's a lie. When all else fails, pray. That sounds good, doesn't it? Wow, it, doesn't that sound spiritual? When all else, when all else fails, pray. Oh, so what that means is, I try everything else. And if it works, I don't have to pray. But I only have to pray after I've tried everything else and it didn't work. That's a lie. There's nothing in the book. It's, that's equivalent to God helps those that help themselves. It's the same principle. That is not only, uh, excuse the double negative, it is not only not an, uh, a biblical statement, it, it, it's a lie. God doesn't help those that help themselves. Cleanliness is not next to godliness. And you can't get a quarter by putting your tooth under your pillow when the tooth fairy comes by. Those all come from the same source. Oh, and there's no Santa Claus. Uh oh. I didn't know your daughter was here, brother. <laughs> So the point I'm trying to make, again, is that those aren't scripture. And they're not even scriptural principles. They're not even good sayings. They sound noble. Well, the Lord is so busy. He's got so much stuff going on, running the whole universe. I only bother him for the big stuff. That's biblical, isn't it? Yeah. That's in the first book of Deception, chapter 3, verse 2. But I think it's also quoted in the uh, second book of Humanism. Chapter 6, verse 1. Or maybe it's in chapter 6, verse 66. So... In this third pattern of prayer, we start with essentially the same principle, stated a different way. So to begin this prayer, in whatever words I use, and again, this is a pattern for prayer. Jesus said when you pray, pray in this manner. In, in, in Matthew it said it like that. In Luke it says when you pray, say. Again, I do not believe. That he is saying for us to repeat these words. Say after me. No. But he is saying the elements of this prayer are essential to prayer. But it's it's the third dimension of prayer. You can try how you want to pray this prayer. But if you never learn anything about the first two dimensions of prayer. You're not going to have a whole lot of connection to this third dimension of prayer. You're not going to be able to do it. You can try. You can say the words. The Lord may honor your effort, but you're not going to be able to do it on a regular basis because you won't be able to connect with it. You won't have the foundation of experience nor understanding to connect to it. 
But I'm sharing it today because it's where we're supposed to be getting. But it's also where the church in general is not. Okay? So, our Father which art in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. That is the same thing as humble yourselves. It is a confession. First of all, it's not my Father which art in heaven. Because when you get to this place of praying, you know you're not in this by yourself and you're not trying to be in this by yourself. You know that two are better than one. You know that if any two of you agree on earth is touching anything, you'll have it of my Father which is in heaven. So when you're praying this prayer, you don't necessarily have to pray this simultaneously with others. But there is a confession that I'm not in this by myself. I'm a part of something bigger than me. So it's our Father and our, and confessing to start this prayer that our, that He is my Father puts Him over everything. How can I be sufficient, self-sufficient, independent, self-reliant when there's someone that much greater than me up there? I can't be. I can be rebellious. I can be disobedient. I can be prideful. But I can't be self-sufficient. And I can't be self-reliant. And I can't be independent. Can't be. It's not possible. Our Father. Our Father. Now, that may be a negative way of viewing it, but but my opinion, it should be viewed positively. I'm not in this by myself. I didn't get here on my own. There is someone who is my originator. There's someone I have proceeded from. There is someone who claims a relationship with me. It's a completely different prayer if you started out, our God who is in heaven. Our Lord who is in heaven. Because it not only implies authority when you say our Father, but it implies relationship. It implies all manner of caring and care All wrapped up into that, that you can't, you can't say the same thing by saying, our God, our Savior, our Lord. I wonder if that's why Jesus, the man, called God Father more times, several times more, than all other appellations he used to refer to God combined. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I actually looked at the numbers. If I'm not mistaken, if I remember the study I did on this uh, correctly, I think it was like 80 or 90% of the time, Jesus referred, the man Christ Jesus referred to God or addressed God as Father 
And only about 10 to 20% of the time did he use any other appellation. Now, we apostolics, of course, we can't call God that because that would make us Trinitarian. That was not a positive statement. That was intended to be a sarcastic point being made. But I will be honest with you. I spent many years of my life as a Holy Ghost-filled, baptized in Jesus' name person, extremely uncomfortable referring to God as Father because it felt like I was bordering on being Trinitarian. Well, then Jesus is a Trinitarian. Because that's what he, how he referred to God. The man Christ Jesus had to be a Trinitarian then if that's the case. Because he referred to God as Father. The question is, what is the number one, or what is the primary title used to refer to God in the New Testament? Father. First Corinthians 8 and 6, but to us there is but one God, the Father. The Father. And Jesus said, I'm a father, but father's in me. So, again, I know I'm hammering this and grinding it, and it's almost fine powder, and I'll be moving on here in a second. But I can't tell you how critical this is. I can't tell you how much it meant to me and my relationship with God when I finally began to be able to call him Father. And I'm going to submit to you that if you have a hard time calling God Father, it is not because it makes you feel like a Trinitarian. It is transference because in almost every instance, if you struggle with calling God Father, you are transferring whatever difficulties you had with your Father to God. Which tells me and should tell you that if you can't call God Father, you have issues that you need to settle with your dad whether he's alive or not. I'll tell you what mine was. My eldest son was the youth pastor at the time. And he had a a meet and greet. And this sounds strange since I was the pastor. But he wanted me to come up and meet with the young people. And let them have a chance to ask me any questions they wanted to ask me. And I was happy to do that. And one young man raised his hand and said, What is your most vivid memory from childhood? Well... I know, I I knew what he was asking. He wanted to know what my most vivid spiritual memory was from childhood. But I shocked him. I said, my most vivid memory from childhood was standing on piers and runways and saying goodbye to my dad who was in the Navy. I don't remember the homecomings. I only remember the send-offs. I only remember the the goodbyes. 
And I did, I knew my dad wasn't leaving because he didn't want to be home with us. I knew that. I knew he loved me. I knew he loved me. And I knew that, uh, you know, this wasn't his choice, but he was doing his duty. And so I didn't feel rejected by him, but it was many, many years before I realized I really felt abandoned by him. Not abandoned in the sense of rejection with the abandonment, but, you know, I'm saying goodbye. And the problem with that, with him gone during all those formative years, my last five years of school at home, my dad was actually home only about three or four months for the entire year. Each one of those four, five years. So with him absent so much, it was easy to create, without even realizing it, this mental image of this hero that I could never live up to. And I did, it was years before I realized I had brought both of those two factors into my relationship with God. And I couldn't call God Father, not because it was a negative term, but because it put him so far above me. I couldn't connect with it. So I'm going to say it to you again. I know, I know I've gone on this. But hear me, hear me, hear me. There is no part of this pattern of prayer more important than the first first part of it. Everything else in this prayer is built upon an understanding of what you're saying and a willingness to say it, confess it at the beginning of your prayer. And the degree to which you understand that, believe it, and can confess it in faith at the beginning of that prayer is going to have a a significant effect upon your ability to effectively pray the rest of the prayer. Because every bit of it's built on that initial foundation. I'm not in this by myself. There's others like me. We're doing this together. And we are praying to our Father. He is God. We acknowledge He's God. And He manifests himself, manifests himself in the flesh and was our Savior. And by His Spirit, the Father's Spirit, I was filled with the Father's Spirit. Call it the Holy Ghost if you want to, but it was the Father's Spirit that came in me after I repented and was water baptized. It was the Father's Spirit. The, the Spirit of the Father and the, and the term Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit are, are, are synonymous Speaking of exactly the same thing, because the Bible says there's only one spirit. God is a spirit. But even more so is my understanding of the relationship. Huh, one of my favorite verses, they're all my favorite, they should all be yours too, but there's some that they just really click. And that's like First John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Wow. That's amazing. So if it's that amazing that I'm called a son, 
then it's that amazing that I can refer to, since I'm a son, that I can refer to God as my father. And so when I say, Father, our Father, my Father, who's in heaven, I'm saying the one that loves me more than anybody's ever loved me and ever will love me, who did what for, did for me what nobody else has ever or could ever do for me, demonstrating a love beyond all comprehension, greater than any love, the love of a parent, the love of a wife, the love of children, period. Greater than all those loves. He is the one who is in a place of superiority and oversight over everything. And that's the one to whom I'm praying and the one with whom I am participating as a fellow laborer in the work of his kingdom. The rest of the prayer, it's all important. But it works to the degree that we can understand the first part. Then the next part says, hallowed be thy name. Not Hollywood be thy name. This is an amazing thing. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I can read Greek scholars and what they say. Okay? Um, started one time to study Greek, and the Lord said, no, I don't want you doing that. He said, I don't want you to become an expert. Just be a student. So I am. So anyway, the thing that's so amazing is, here, here I'm supposed to be praying, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day as our daily bread. Every one of those verbs is in the imperative tense. You know what the imperative tense is? It's the tense of command. But we're praying. We may be praying, but... The tense is command. Then are we commanding God? No. You can't command someone that's greater than you. So what are we doing? <laughs> We're partners. I, I, I have entered into his presence in the first pattern of prayer. I have sought for him to have fellowship with him in the second pattern of prayer. But now I am joined with him in his yoke, laboring together with him in the third pattern of prayer. And so the prayer is written in the imperative tense. And it's not that I'm commanding God. It's that he, through me, in partnership with me, is speaking into the spiritual atmosphere a command for these things to be done. So I'm not commanding God. God, I'm yielding my being to God for God to speak through me as his partner, his yoke mate, 
into the supernatural dimension, a command of authority backed by the heavenly Father who is the ultimate authority into the spiritual atmosphere to accomplish whatever it is I'm commanding. And what is the first thing Jesus taught for us to pray? And this can only be important to you. If you know him, if you've sought for him, and you know him, and he matters to you. Hallowed be thy name. Or let's put it this way. Jesus, I command that your name be manifested in this earth in a way that your name would be sanctified in the hearts and minds of men and women in this earth. And therefore it would be set apart from the common and blasphemous ways that it has been used. Because it has been degraded by man. So manifest the power and the authority of your name in the earth to such a degree and in such a way that men who used your name even as a word of profanity, now speak your name with hallowed reverence. Let me tell you something right now. (laughs) That prayer is powerful. That's powerful. That's powerful. Are you sitting here? Have you repented of your sins? Have you been baptized with him in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has his name been called upon you? And the Greek word there is epikaleo, which means to be, literally means to be surnamed. When you were water baptized, you were re-surnamed. That's why Ephesians chapter 3 talks about his name being the family name of heaven and earth. It's the family name. I changed family names. You know, the world is messed up enough with racism. But if your culture is white culture, black culture, Spanish culture, southern culture, northern culture, New York culture... Arkansas culture, whatever, you ain't saved yet. Because if you're still holding on to your identity based on your natural culture, then are you born again of water and the Spirit? Because you're supposed to have one culture, the culture of Christ, which has no color, it has no, it has no heritage outside of Him. Isn't that what the blood is supposed to be? Isn't the blood supposed to draw a line separating from us from the natural culture and all that goes with that and giving us a new culture? If you don't want to do that, I'm not sure you want to be saved. Because otherwise, no offense. How could God even think I was raised in the Navy. I didn't live in the South all my life. I've only lived 16 years. I've lived 50 of my 66 years north of the Potomac River. 48 years in Maryland. 
and two years in Rhode Island. That's 50 years out of my 66 north of the Potomac River. I don't know why I still have this accent. Why would God send somebody with this accent to Maryland to build a church? Because for some people, it automatically couples me with people who have got the wrong idea about races. And to other people, it connects me with their preconceptions that everybody with a southern accent's ignorant. So he... Yeah, you, you're not shocked by that, Rose. I'm sorry. You lived here all your life. No, you're not. No, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Thank you for your kindness, but that's not true. You know it's not. Because I, I, there have been people here, all I had to do was open my mouth and I saw it in their eyes. He's ignorant. I wonder what valley or, or, what do you call it valley? What do you call it? Um, holler. Wonder what holler he crawled out of. That shows how ignorant they are. They can't even tell the difference between one southern accent and another. But that's the point, you see. Now, if if your culture in Christ is still the culture you had before you came to Christ, then the Lord is being totally ridiculous to send somebody like me here. He ought to send somebody like them here. That's what he should have done. He didn't do it. Why? Because when I came to Christ, the only culture I'm supposed to have is his. His culture. What what would happen if the body of Christ would learn to get in his presence on a daily basis and then using that as the the, the, the the launching pad would then begin to seek for him I mean without faith it is impossible to please him for God is a rewarder I can't believe I can't quote that verse but, but without faith it is impossible to please him For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that seek, that diligently seeks for him, not from him. Hello? Faith, the purest expression of faith, is not to be seeking for things from God. The purest expression of faith is to be seeking for God himself. Without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I put the for in there, but diligently seek him. Seeking for him, not from him. What would happen if people who had reached this place and now have become joint heirs with Christ and, and fellow laborers with God and we are connected together in His yoke and we 
with understanding of our Father and who He is and how great He is and where He sits over all this, would begin to speak the Word and release His name to be manifested in the atmosphere to change a whole world's opinion of His name. You say, I don't know if that's going to happen. I got prophecy. Do you? How about ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake? Well, while we hide in our closets, while the rest of the world is out of their closet, there's no reason for them to hate us. They don't know we're existing because we're hiding from them. But when we come out of our closets and God begins to manifest his name and its power through the people who have had the name called on them, they're going to be forced to make a decision. You know, one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Jesus' ministry was what it was in those last three years or so before his crucifixion, Because judgment was coming. Judgment of God was coming. What was the judgment of God? Everybody, everybody that was alive who was a part of the people of God based on a couple of thousand years of teaching, tablets on Mount Sinai, prophets, priests, kings that had from the father of Abraham on down, had led them to this particular point. They were the people of God. But on the moment, or at the moment, on the day, that his breath left his body, and then 50 days later, it returned back to the earth to come into 120 people in the morning. All of those people that had been the people of God were no longer saved people. They were saved to that point. They were the people of God to that point. They were the depository of truth to that point. But at that point, he changed it all. And out of love and mercy. Why do you think he said, I can only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Because the Gentiles, they didn't have that kind of relationship with him. But the people that up to that moment thought they were the people of God because they were the people of God. That were up to that point the depository of truth. That up to that point they could be saved by all that stuff they'd been preached to and taught by the, by, by Moses and the prophets and, and all those people all those years. They needed to make a decision about him before that day. Because at that day, whatever their decision was about him was going to determine whether they were saved after that day. So he did whatever was necessary. And that's why Paul could say to the king, this thing wasn't done in a corner. What did he mean? Jesus' ministry in Israel was known by everybody and every individual person in Israel had to make a decision. Yes, he's the Messiah. 
No, he's not the Messiah. And based on that decision, on the day that the old covenant was no more and the new began, the ones that said he's the Messiah were now the people of God because they obeyed his teaching and they were now the saved. And those that were saved up to that point were no longer saved. And he went to all of that extent out of love and mercy to those people because of what was coming that they couldn't understand. And I told you this morning, in that seven-year period after the rapture, and if you believe in mid- or post-trib, I don't have the time to argue with you today, but I promise you I can prove it. Prove it. Would love to debate you on it. Okay? And I don't need Clarence Larkin's book. I've never read it. There is a book I have read, though, and this is where I got my doctrine from. Ever heard of the Bible? It's in there. It's in there. Okay? And at that day, when the church is taken out of the way, on that day, when that first seal is opened, First, first verse, chapter 6 of Revelation, when that first seal is open and the church is in heaven, those that are kings and priests were redeemed by thy blood. That's what they said at the end of chapter 5. They were in heaven and they had been redeemed and they had been made, past tense, kings and priests to rule and reign together with him. They were there in heaven when the seal was open. And starting with that day, the first wave one out of every four people on earth dies. And in the next wave of wrath, one out of every three that are left will die. So one out of every two people left on earth after the rapture in that next seven years is going to die. And God, because he's a God of mercy and a God of love, is not going to come back. Now, if you, you, if you believe he can come back today, I feel sorry for you. Not trying to be a smart aleck. Not trying to act like I'm arrogant here. But I'm going to tell you what, the word of God is very clear on this can't be the case. There is going to be a manifestation of the sons of God in the end of the, in the end of the, of this dispensation, just like there was a manifestation of the Son of God at the end of the last dispensation. And the manifestation is going to be so powerful because of the price that people are going to pay who reject it. And God's going to use the church in such a way that the name of Jesus is going to be manifested in this earth and people are going to have to make a decision. It's either a curse word or the word that every man under heaven and given among men must has got to be saved by it. I don't care what we look like right now. It doesn't matter to me at all. And when I pray, because I, I have a heavenly father, and I am his son, and I am under him, and he's over everything, and I speak in Jesus' name, I loose the name of Jesus Christ to be manifest in the earth, that it might become sanctified and set apart as holy by the people of this earth. Oh, I'm going to tell you something. When that is spoken in faith, 
You may not see it right away, but there are reverberations all through the spirit world. Then connected to that. It's a command. It's the imperative tense. And since we're not commanding God, but we're praying under the covering of our, thar- our Father and in partnership with our Father, we are commanding into the spiritual atmosphere, Thy kingdom come! What does that mean? Jesus said, when I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is come unto you. So when I'm, when I'm speaking for the kingdom of God to come, in whatever wor- words, if I say it just those words and I go on to something else, or, or I feel led to pray more detail about that, what I am really doing is I'm loosing the kingdom of God to be manifest in the earth. And what is, what is that? The Bible says, let me see if I can find it. It's in my notes for whenever I get to it. I was supposed to do it last night. I thought I was. Obviously I wasn't. Is what this says. Um, where's it at? Come on here. Oh. Here it is. Colossians 1, I forget which verse it is, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Who, Christ, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. He's called us out of darkness. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The kingdom. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The word kingdom is a contraction of two words. King's dominion. The word kingdom simply means God's exercised authority in a situation that exercises God's dominion over that situation. So, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And we enter into the kingdom of God because we are to seek first in priority and in order of time the kingdom of God every day, not seeking for the things that are going to be added because everything else is an addition. I don't have to seek that at all. He said, don't take any thought for what you're going to put on. Don't take any thought for what you're going to eat. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of all of that. Don't take any thought for tomorrow. Seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom first. The kingdom, the kingdom. That is a New Testament dimension of prayer that you can't start with even though it's in the book. You can't start there. We're not made up like that. He didn't create us like that. 
That's why we have to pray that first pattern of prayer to learn how to consistently get in his presence every day. Then we, we, we move to the pattern of prayer that teaches us how to have a relationship because we're seeking for God. And then once we have a relationship with him, we want to get together with him and his yoke could be a fellow laborer, a, a, a joint participant, participant with him in his kingdom. A conduit. Now, again, I apologize for those of you that have heard this, but I'm obeying the Holy Ghost here. The term sovereignty of God as we use it is not a biblical context. It's not a biblical statement. Because the way it is used by us implies that we don't have to worry about this happening or not happening. God is going to step in and do it himself. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Now, the Baptist may be able to preach that. Methodists can preach that. Others may be able to preach it. But if you're a one God apostolic, you can't preach that because it's totally inconsistent with your doctrine. A man can repent anywhere. He doesn't need any help. And I know people have gotten the Holy Ghost all by themselves. At home, in bed, in the car, right down the road. Alone with nobody around them. But they're right smack dab in the middle of repentance to receive the Holy Ghost. There's something that the sinner cannot do with... Even with God's help, he can't baptize himself. And God won't baptize him. So right in the middle of the plan of salvation we preach as apostolics, and that the apostolic church believes, and the book of Acts church was the apostolic church, demonstrates that God cannot and will not save man without human participation. Therefore, the lie that the sovereignty of God is that God's going to step in and we can sit back and watch and he's going to do it without our participation is exactly that. It is a lie from the pits of hell. That's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. That's why God gave man dominion. Satan has authority. You know that? You know where he got it? He got it from man. God put man over the, gave man dominion over the earth. God gave man authority. So that, so, so the, the, the serpent deceives us and we forfeit the authority and it's the only authority he's got now. It wasn't his authority. And how is God going to get it back? Is he going to step in and bypass man? No, man gave it up, man's got to take it back. God's not going to do it without us involved. And we can sit around, beat our heads against the wall all we want, and we can sing good and play and play good and preach good and have good services. But if we're not going to be involved with the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God taking dominion in the spirit world, we don't want, we don't want, we don't want to run this world. We're not trying to run this world. Let somebody else worry about the the, the the bridges and the and the roads and, and uh, all that other stuff. That's not what we're after. We're not looking for an earthly kingdom. We don't want to be in charge of the government. But we want the Lord's kingdom to be manifest in the earth. Because it is the demonstration, the manifestation of his power and authority. Delivering the lost from the bondage that they're in. So they can be saved. 
Brother T, I've quoted this many times, but Brother T.W. Barnes, the prophet of God, the man of God, probably really an apostle of God, said to me personally, and I know he said it to others, but he said it to me. He said that the lost are blinded with a spirit of blindness from the adversary. And they can't even decide whether or not they want to be saved till after someone with the authority to do so prays that blindness off of them. If our gospel be hid, it is hid in them that lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ through his image of God should shine unto them. It is the spirit of disobedience. The prince of power of the air is the spirit of disobedience that now works in the spirit of, uh, how does that go? I got it right here. Hang on. It is Ephesians 2, verse 1. Let me read that. Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Next verse. Among whom also we had our conversation. The word conversation there in the King James is the translation of a word that does not mean two people talking together. Conversation is your conduct of life. It has everything to do, it, it, it refers to everything about how you conduct your life. Not just what you say, your facial expressions, the manifestation of your character, your, your interpersonal relationships with people. It's your, it's your life, your life, how you live your life. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even, even as others. This is the condition the world's in. We, we can sit back in our little holy ivory towers if we want to and point fingers at all those people out there that are lost, but all we're doing is condemning ourselves. Because if they're lost... They're blind, and the people with the ability to set them free are too busy having church. I was teaching an evangelist, a, 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 a soul winning seminar down in, oh, I won't say where, uh, down somewhere north of the Canadian, south of the Canadian border, uh, and, uh, and, and it was, I won't go into all the story, but, there was a little bit of weather. It was no big deal. Here, it would have been no big deal. But there, it was a big deal. And and so, uh, it got a little cool, and the place they were going to use didn't have heat. And, but it had all their equipment set up, and they had to move all of that stuff. It, we were almost an hour late starting service because all that PA equipment, all that musical instruments, all that stuff had to be moved into the only heated space they had. And I was informed that the crowd would be a lot smaller than it would have been because of the weather. There was nothing on the roads. There was a little bit of ice, if you look real closely, that hit the windshield. But it melted in a moment's time. But I was told, and it was true, uh, that you know the crowd would be sm- much smaller because of this. And and, and I, I said, then why are we setting all this up? Oh, because there is a group that's going to drive through this weather because they're a choir we've invited to sing and they will be here. Oh, okay. 
And so my spirit is kind of, and I up, down, boy, down, boy, down, boy. Just, just chill. Get in God's hands. Don't sweat it. Just, just find you a little place and hide in your corner until it's your turn. So I did. So by the time they got started, I found myself a place kind of on, I was on the front row, but I was over, over on the corner. And the music was great. The singing was phenomenal. And I felt the presence of the Lord. And I'm sitting there. And it's supposed to be a seminar about winning the lost. But we couldn't just talk about that. We had to have church. And we didn't want to offend people that we'd invited to sing who came in bad weather to sing when people who were wanting to be trained to reach the lost couldn't brave it because it was too dangerous. And I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling the presence of God, and I'm just trying to mind my own business, try to keep my spirit absolutely as calm as possible because I didn't want to get up and go off on those that were there. And the Lord said to me, the reason my church is not reaching the world it's because my people are too addicted to good church. And that's our definition of success. Good church. Good church. Doesn't have to be in results. We just want to have good church. Good church. Oh, I'm off the subject. No, I'm not. <laughs> All right, so our Father's in heaven. He's over all of this. He loves us. We're his sons. And so we speak. He speaks to us. But it's our voice speaking. We speak it in the atmosphere of the voice of command. Hallowed be thy name. I release the name of Jesus to do whatever's necessary for the name to be sanctified, holy, set apart. And then I, I, I release the kingdom of God to come in the earth, to be manifested in the earth. All of the authority and power of God that needs to be demonstrated, manifest, release that. And then this next prayer, which is simply a another way of saying Matthew 16, 18 and 19. Uh, Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the, the I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Praying that prayer is exactly the same thing as praying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the actual greek grammar of matthew 16 19 is literally this and you can find a couple of translations that actually go this literal uh under the the i give the keys of king of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have already been bound or loosed in in, in heaven so i'm not instigating something i am participating with the one i've got this relationship with and allowing him to use me to speak what he has determined in heaven into the earth that's what you're doing you know what the problem with all that is you have to really have a relationship with him without feeling like it's stupid and you're just wasting your time you have to understand your place our place in the body in God's purpose and plan. The Lord has limited himself to not be able to do it by himself. So somebody's heart, spirit, and then lips 
just got to hear it, believe it, and speak it for it to happen. We're only the conduit. We start out as containers. But somewhere in this second process, in this first prayer, we're celebrating the fact we're a container. We're filled by the Spirit Spirit of God. And we want to be able to fellowship with that Spirit every day. But in this second pattern of prayer, we're transitioning from being a container. We start out this, this, this second pattern of prayer as containers, and we end up as conduits. And then in the third pattern of prayer, the conduit is submitted, and he flows through the conduit. Conduit transition from conduit contain excuse container transition from container to conduit and then he uses the conduit. And the third pattern of prayer is how he wants to use the conduit. And I'm a conduit. I'm a conduit. I don't know how it got started, but some time ago, six, seven, eight months, I don't remember exactly what it was. We were going to be out of town and my wife had just bought some new plants outside in, during the springtime. And, and uh, her mother, who lives in the area, she asked her mother if her mother would just be willing to come over water her plants while we were gone. Well, when we got back, her mother said to her, you know, I've enjoyed this very much. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to continue it. Well, my wife said, well, if that's what you'd like to do, sure, you're welcome over here anytime. And if you want to come just water these plants, enjoy yourself. Fine. And, you know, you can hear the car drive up. And she doesn't knock on the door. It doesn't come in the house. Not She's not welcome. She just doesn't. She, he goes around the back of the house and, and you hear it. She turns on the faucet and then she gets that hose and she goes from plant to plant to plant watering those plants and some of them probably too much but it's worth her having something to do like that she wants to do if she wants to drown every plant we got it so no big deal okay but you know she does that and then after she does that then you can hear it again she's turned it off then the car cranks up and she leaves right but there was a hose there's a hose there's a hose hooked up to the faucet and that that hose just is there. It's hooked up to the source, but there's nothing flowing through the hose. But somebody comes up, because that hose is hooked up to the source, somebody walks up and turns on the source, and water begins to flow. And that hose just allows itself to be stretched here and pointed here. And and, and that water flows through that hose. And and it brings life to those plants. Especially when we've gone through those periods of time when it wasn't a lot of rain. Does it? And then that source is turned off. And that hose is just laying there. It may not be very complimentary to you in your mind. But that's... I want to be that more than anything else in this world. I want to be available to whenever he wants to use me. And whatever he wants to flow, I want to let it flow. And wherever he wants to port, point the flow, I want to let him determine where it's pointed. I have one goal in ministry. Go and flow. I want to go wherever he's sending me. 
And when I get there, I want to flow as long as it's flowing. And when he turns the source off, I want to get back in on the plane or in my car and go home. Don't you want a fellowship? I sure do. She's back here. <laughs> Hi and bye. Okay. Not in, I'm not trying to be unkind here or whatever, but that that's what it's about. And whether that's walking in a store, going, and the Lord speaking to you and say, flow here to this person, or on the job, flow here, or in school, flow here, or whatever situation it would be, that is the sum total, uh, or the sum of the third prayer. Go and flow. Go and flow. I said to our music minister a couple of years ago, he said, uh, you know, I don't know if I've ever been any place like this. Really? Yeah? He said, you all don't take any services off. I said, no, no, we don't take any services off. They may not always be the best, but it's not because we took it off. And I said, you know, I appreciate you, and I appreciate your singing, and I appreciate your playing. But let me tell you something you know. I don't have to stand here but five seconds, and I know whether you've got the flow tonight. And I appreciate your skill, and I appreciate you working with all the singers. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me how good it sounds. All I want to know is, did you find the flow? And is there a flow of ministry? To these people. Is there a flow of ministry? I can live with less. Less professional singing. And playing. As long as there's a flow. Now. The rest of this prayer. Which is prayed after the fact. Is prayed to protect the conduit. It is, it is prayed to protect. And what's the first prayer of protection? Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because the adversary knows that one of the easiest ways to neutralize the people of Christ is put them in financial straits. And the average Christian, the average person that prays, loves God, you put them in financial straits and their focus gets redirected because we're just human beings. It takes an awful lot of maturity and God to not get distracted when you go through financial straits. And you... And so therefore, what you're praying is, Father, uh, I'm praying a prayer of protection over my resources, my income, so that I won't be distracted from my purpose of participating with you in your kingdom and speaking your word into the atmosphere. 
And then the next prayer of protection is in regards to last night. Now notice, in the first pattern of prayer, the first thing you deal with is your sin and cleansing before you even enter the presence of God. In the second pattern of prayer, you, you, you're dealing with soul. You're dealing with self. The first pattern of prayer, you have to deal with flesh before you can deal with anything else. In the second pattern of prayer, it's not flesh you're dealing with. You're dealing with self. Three parts of our bodies, body, soul, and spirit. At death, your body's going back to the dust from whence it came. It's not going to heaven or hell at that point. And the spirit of life that's in you is going to go back to God that gave it. Your soul, the only part of you that's you truly and fully you, is going to go to, to, to Hades or the third heaven before the rapture, before the resurrection. That's the only part of you. So in this second pattern of prayer, it's not that flesh isn't the issue. He's dealing with the more, the more fundamental issue. The more fundamental issue is not my flesh, it's my soul. Because that's the seat of the will. That's where choices are made. That's where faith takes place or not. When the Bible says uh, that, that you, you believe with the heart and confession is made unto salvation, the words heart and mind are actually the two parts of the soul. The heart is the inner man. The heart is the subconscious person, the inner man. And the mind is the conscious man. And that's the part of our soul that relates to the temporal world. So with the mind part of my soul, I relate to my flesh and I relate to the world. With the heart part of me, my inner man... I relate to God, uh, or I, I relate to the Spirit, and therefore to God. So faith comes when God, through my Spirit, speaks to my heart. Faith comes by hearing, hear by the Word of God. My heart believes it, and then it communicates it to my mind, and my mind decides to speak it. Into the earth. It is not faith because you've heard it in here and believe it. It only is activated faith once it goes from the heart to the mind. From the inner man to the outer man. And is spoken into the atmosphere. So in this dimension, this dimension, the first dimension of prayer... I'm primarily dealing with flesh and getting it out of the way so I can fellowship with the presence of God. In the second dimension of uh, of prayer, I'm primarily dealing with the soul, the will of man, so that I can go from being a container to a conduit. And I can have a, a, a relationship with God, an intimate personal relationship with God. In the third dimension of, uh, of uh, prayer, I am fellowshipping with his spirit in a relationship that he now can flow through my spirit into the earth. I become a conduit from him, through the spirit, through the will, and out the mouth of the flesh. So that my whole being is involved with the kingdom. But I've got to protect this middle part here. Because this middle part is really me. And how do I do that? 
the next prayer of protection is, forgive me of my sins, what we did last night. You got to get the conscience clean and keep it clean. That, 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 because of that, if you wait till every morning to confess your sins, you're letting your conscience get all cluttered up with stuff throughout the day and then you get up in the morning, okay, now it's time to get it clean. No, 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 no. It is an ongoing process. How do I know that? Because 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 says, if we fellowship one with another, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sins. One with another, yes. Because in the Old Testament, each person had to provide their own sacrifice to have blood. In the New Testament, there's only one sacrifice, and the blood is in the body. And if I want access to the blood, I've got to be in fellowship with the body, because the blood is only in the body. I separate myself from the body, I separate myself from the blood. So therefore, in this prayer of protection... I am praying against those things that could separate me from the body, from the fellowship. And if I could be so bold as to say this, not that I am ever bold, but if I could be bold in this one instance to say this, if you would allow me to say it like this, it's not that my sin in being forgiven in this prayer is unimportant. It is important. But the key is not me being forgiven. The key is me forgiving. Because I'm only forgiven as I forgive. So the key in keeping my conscience clear and keeping the flow working is forgiving. And again, as I quoted last night, Acts 24, 16. Here and to exercise myself, Paul said to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and man and toward men. So, whether that offense is toward God, toward others, or toward myself, I've got to forgive so that I can be forgiven. It does not matter how sincere I am in asking, confessing or asking forgiveness for what I've done. It doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how much I weep. If I've got anything in my heart towards somebody else, he said, I'm not forgiving you because I will forgive you as you forgive others. So therefore, therefore, this second prayer of protection, the first Prayer of protection is against those material things. Against Satan being able to touch those material things that would be totally distracting. Because the second stuff is between me and God primarily. It's not that others can't be affected, but it's between me and God primarily. This first stuff, if there's no, if, if I'm responsible for my family and I got no income, I'm not just feeling the weight on myself. It, 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 the weight is on everybody. It's because of everybody, and it's me. I'm the one supposed to be providing, and I'm not able to do it. And, uh, oh, boy, and, and, you know, and my wife's looking at me, and my kids, you know, we're hungry, and, and what about the bills, and why can't we do this? And, and, and you know, and, and there's pressure there, and, and pressure produces frustration, and frustration produces weariness, and weariness is the antidote to revival. And the way you get rid of pressure is you cast it on to God. 
So you're going to have peace. Because if you keep the pressure, pressure produces frustration. Frustration produces weariness. And weariness will stop revival. And be not weary in well-doing. For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. The word faint there means to give up and quit. To lose spirit and give up and quit. That's what word faint means. To lose spirit, give up and quit. Well, that's what, that's what weirdness does. So if you carry around pressure, and then that pressure becomes frustration because stuff's not working, and that frustration wears you out, it steals your energy, your emotional, physical, mental energy. Now you're weary. And weariness will cause you to lose spirit, give up, and quit. And no revival, no harvest. And you don't fix it by getting rid of weariness. You don't fix it by getting rid of frustration. You fix it by coming back over here and giving up the pressure. And so part of that prayer is casting all of my needs on God. Here it is, God. I can't do this without you. You promised to take care of me. I am your servant. I'm your soldier. No man goes to war in his own charges. I'm your soldier. I'm in your war. So you're going to take care of me here, Father. His word says no man's going to go to war in his own charges. If my finance, if I'm in a financial bind, no man goes to war in his own charges. There's a, there's a problem here. No man goes to war in his own charges. And if I'm, if I'm warring for the Lord, he, prov- you know what? You, know, you, you, you don't want the people out there on the front lines at the point of attack defending your freedoms. You don't want them worried about if they're going to eat today. You don't want them worried about if they're going to be able to pay, pay their bills for their family that's back home. You want them to know all that's taken care of so their mind can be focused. But we don't pray this prayer. Because we pray it some other way. We make that our first priority. Our first priority is getting rid of our sins. The second priority is to make sure we're all taken care of. No pain, no problem, no pressure. And so now, thank you Jesus for this little bit of fellowship. Now I'm going to go live my life, have my th- I'll be back to check on you, Lord, if there's any problems. I'll come back and see how you're doing, Lord. So, that's the first prayer of protection. Second prayer of protection is, I'm going to forgive so that I can be forgiven. Third prayer of protection. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil. And the Greek word there is not evil as an adjective, a descriptive adjective, but it's the evil one. That's the Greek word there. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Bible says Jesus was led in the wilderness to be tempted. If I'm going to be tempted of the evil one, I want to know that it wasn't the devil's idea. Okay? That's the third prayer of protection. First prayer of protection against my natural things so that I can stay focused as a soldier. Second prayer of protection is my heart. And my mind, my inner man, I want to keep this all clear so there's nothing hindering between me and God. And the third prayer of protection is that I would not be under the power of Satan. That whatever the adversary does in my life, that I would be able to have absolute confidence that it all had to come through God. And he's only allowing it for my good and for the good of the purpose and kingdom of God. 
And then the prayer finishes in Matthew in a very significant way. And I don't know why it wasn't included by the Lord in Luke. I don't know that. It's, I'm not judging that. I'm just simply saying this is a significant prayer to pray because it is, it is the culmination of all of this. Of all three patterns of prayer. You work your way through all these three patterns of prayer and you participate in this third pattern of prayer in the kingdom, with the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the will of God being done on the earth, binding and loosing and all of that, and then praying the prayer's protection over you as a, as a soldier in God's army, a warrior in his battles. But the final thing you're praying is your motive check. It's your motive check. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. This isn't about me, Jesus. This is all about you. And I'm not participating in this for what I'm going to get out of it. The blessing and the joy of my participation is that I'm privileged to be in fellowship with you and a fellow laborer with you and a conduit for you. And we're doing this together. And Lord, if you don't do anything else for me, it's enough because that's the greatest blessing possible. It's the motive check. And hear me right now. At the risk of this sounding like hyperbole, motive is far more important to God than action. Why you're doing what you're doing in your heart of heart of hearts, why you're asking, why you're saying, why you're doing, why you're not saying, why you're not doing, is far more important to God than anything else. Galatians 5 and 6 says, Faith worketh by love. The word worketh there means to cause to be operative, to activate. Faith is activated by And is caused to be worked by love. Now, can you have a measure of faith and it work without love? Yeah, Jesus said, or excuse me, the spirit of Jesus did through Paul. Said, you can covet the gifts. You you can get the gifts by coveting them. But you can always tell when somebody's got gifts from God and they got them through coveting. Because they use them to point, uh, to, to attract attention to themselves and to glorify themselves. When your motive is right in, a, in, in receiving gifts, God always is the ultimate focal point for the glory. He's the ultimate focal point for the glory. It's a motive check. It's a motive check. That's why 
Jesus did not say, if you keep my commandments, you love me. Because if he said that, he would be approving of the motive that I'm keeping his commandments to earn or deserve his love. But he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Because keeping his commandments should be a result of our love, not an effort to gain love that was freely given in the first place. And if you read carefully, almost every scripture along that line is very specifically stated to not only tell you what to do and what the results of it are, but what the acceptable motive of it is. For instance, the greatest commandment of all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's awesome, isn't it? Whoa, yeah, let's all go try to do that. Can't do it. Why can't we do it? Well, here's the problem. First John 4, 19 says, We love him because he first loved us. Three primary... Ooh. I'm, I'm almost quit. I don't want to lie. I'm trying to quit. That, that's true. I'm trying. I, I don't know how successful I am. Three, three, three primary Greek words for love, eros, agape, and filio. Eros, filio, and agape. Eros is, I know it's the word from which we get the word erotic, but it really is selfish love. What's in it for me? Philio, and it's not in the King James New Testament Greek. Uh, filio is the height of human emotion. It's an emotional love. But emotions are fickle, so this love is inconsistent. And finally, agape, and the word agape is not found in classical Greek. It's a word that the Holy Ghost brought into existence to describe something that doesn't, it does not exist in the natural. It is God's kind of love. Eros is selfish love. It's what's in it for me. Filio is 50-50 love. I give you 50, you give me 50. We both love, but we hadn't cost us anything. And then finally, agape love is I'm going to love you regardless of what you do in return. God is, the scripture says God of love. It doesn't say God is eros. It's not true. It doesn't say God is filio. That's not true. It says God is agape. Okay, so we agape him because for this reason, by this means, we love him because he first, we agape him because we first received agape from him. We can't give that to him unless we first receive it. We have no ability to to come up with it. We can't manufacture it. We can't invent it. We can't produce it. The only way we can get it is to receive it as a gift. And therefore, when it says, if you love me, keep my commandments, if you agape me, then you will let my agape empower you to do what's pleasing to me because you can't do it through any other source. 
And hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, thou shalt agape the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, you can't obey the first commandment until you first accepted the gift of his love. The gift of himself. And the verse I used last night, Romans 5, 5. And hope maketh not a shame because the love of God... The agape of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So therefore, I've got to receive agape as a gift, undeserved, unmerited. No no matter how unworthy I am, and we all are unworthy, in order to have agape to enable me to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, That is the power that enables me to keep his commandments. And I can't do it any other way. That's why the primary word translated sin in the Bible is H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. That's the English equivalent of the Greek letters. And the word literally means to miss the mark. And unbelievers cannot sin. Because they're not trying to hit the mark. What they're doing is unbelief. And the Bible calls it specifically that. Or disobedience. Or rebellion. Or iniquity. Or all those things. Those are specific words used to describe the sin of the unbeliever. But for the believer, sin is missing the mark. So, I don't feel worthy to accept God's love. So, I determine I'm going to win God's love by being good. And I'm trying to be good so that God will approve of me and love me. And while I'm doing okay, I'm thinking, oh, I finally made it. God loves me. And then my flesh finally demonstrates it's still flesh. And I make a mistake. And so I'm back to ground zero again. And God doesn't love me. And i got to start all over again trying to get God to love me by doing good, being good. That's never going to work. It doesn't work. First of all, it doesn't work because God doesn't bless it. He's not in it. It's not his plan, his way. It doesn't work. I receive God's love as a gift. And that love becomes the power behind both the motivation and the ability to do. Last verse. Here it is. Colossians 2.13. It is God. For it is God that worketh in us both to will that's thelema, Greek word thelema, wish, want, or desire. Both to will and to do. And that word to do is the, the verb form of the Greek word dunamis for supernatural power. So it's the operation of super, supernatural power enabling me to do something. Both to will and to do. For, for it is God that worketh in us. God is love. God is agape. It is God that worketh in us both to will, wish, want, or desire, and to supernaturally be able to do what I cannot do myself of his good pleasure. There's another word for that. Grace. Biblical grace is not a free pass to live any way you want to live. Biblical grace is simply a word to describe God's love at work in us, empowering us, to do what we cannot do ourselves. Father, I love you today.
I thank you for this time together today. I thank you for talking to us. I thank you for speaking to our hearts. I thank you for helping us. I pray in Jesus' name that your spirit of grace will open our hearts, our minds, and help us to receive and to understand, to believe, and to allow your spirit, your love, to activate in us the, 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 both the desire and the ability to do those things that are pleasing to you so that we can not only know you, not only fellowship with your spirit, Father, but to know you as in a personal relationship and then ultimately to be joined together with you and your yoke that you might work through us as a conduit to affect this world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. We will start tonight at seven o'clock sharp. Hallelujah. I don't, I didn't have any feeling for us to do any specific praying. So forgive me if that's a disappointment. I just obey God. See you tonight.